so we are in a series called uh, The Prayers of Jesus. And we hear a lot uh, in the scriptures about Jesus praying. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of times they don't tell us what he actually prayed. Uh, because he was alone uh, in the garden. He was uh, off by himself. As he says, you know, go into the room and close the door. So um, last week we, uh, we did an intro and we looked at Luke 18. And we looked at three things. How uh, Jesus wants us to be persistent in prayer humble in prayer and expectant in prayer, those three things. And I hope that those three will kind of guide the next uh, weeks as we look into the actual prayers of Jesus that we have recorded. So let's pray and we'll jump in to John 17. God, we ask uh, right now that your spirit would be alive in this text, that it would... um, have meaning for us this morning, that we would get rid of our distractions or the things we have to do later today and focus on what you want to teach us. We ask that your spirit would move powerfully in our midst even now as we sing, as we hear your word, and as you teach us. So God, if we need um, encouragement today, would you give us encouragement? If we need a prodding in one direction, would you move us? I ask that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Amen. So John 17 is a passage where we actually get the words of Jesus' prayer. Now we have the, 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 the Lord's Prayer, which many of you probably have memorized in your life. But Jesus, I don't, in some ways, wasn't really even praying that. He was teaching other people how to pray. But John 17 are, is an actual version of Jesus' prayer. How cool is that? Did you kind of wonder, as I read this passage and I think about that, how did John get this? How did he get his prayer, the words of Jesus on this? I like to think of like Jesus being in the garden and the disciples kind of like sneaking up and like overhearing what he's praying and like writing, it, like writing it down or just memorizing what he said. Or maybe this is something that Jesus prayed over them. Uh, we're not quite sure, but somehow John got these words that this is the prayer that Jesus had been praying for his disciples specifically today. We're going to, uh, we could go through verses one through five, which is Jesus talking about glorifying himself, uh, the Father glorifying him, and, and that will be kind of infused in this passage. And then the, the next week, we're, or not next week, because I'm not speaking next week, but I'm going to cover the rest of John 17 in a couple weeks, and it's going to be more on unity. I think that that's a, a, a theme throughout this that we're going to touch on more in the future. But today, I want to give you two ways that Jesus wants to correct our thinking and then what Jesus prays for his disciples, the, the 11 the tw- of the 12 that are still with him. The first correction. I want you to see in this passage, and, I, and I'll just say this about correction. Uh, you don't really like, no one likes to hear correction about anything, but I figure if it comes from, if I phrase it as this is Jesus' correction and not my own, it will come across better. So Jesus' corrections to us, not, not, not Dave's, all right? The likeness between the Father and the Son. Now you may say, I already know about Jesus and God being alike. Of course, they are part of the Trinity. But I want you to see how Jesus takes pains to show his unity in his likeness, in his uh, oneness with the Father in this passage. Jesus starts off in verse 6 by saying, 
to his disciples that he, he has revealed God's name. When it says that he has revealed God's name, that is something that should kind of reverberate throughout Scripture because what we, what we mean by re, re, revealing God's name, it means to reveal his honor, but also his character and his identity. When God acted in history, he often did so to sanctify his name, to honor his name, to, to show his character, to show his identity to the world. God expected his people to sanctify his name, especially by their righteous deeds. Many rabbis at the time would say that God, was, his name was hidden in the present age, but would be revealed in the coming age. And so what Jesus saying that he has revealed God's name is saying that that coming age, that new age, that new reality that they were longing for, not the present age, but the age to come, is here. That's a significant thing. Moses sought to know God's name, to reveal it to God's people, Israel. And here Jesus is, is providing and honoring and revealing God's name to his disciples. They're getting the same privilege that Moses is getting in a way. Verse 6 continues on and says, Everything you have given me comes from you. Meaning you've given me all these things. Everything's come from the Father. Verse 8 says uh, that you gave, uh, I, I gave them your words, Jesus said. I gave the Father's words. Verse 9 says that you sent me. Jesus is saying that God sent him. The Father sent him. Verse 10 says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. Verse 11 says, unity, there's unity between the Father and the Son. I said we're going to cover more of this the next time I speak on this passage, but I just want to, to make it really clear because it's an important part of this, that they may be one, meaning disciples may be one, as we are one, as the Father and the Son are one. This is really similar to John 14, 9 and 10, where it says this, he, Jesus is speaking to Philip, and this, this is all part of the same kind of discourse, same passage where Jesus is speaking and giving kind of his last words before the cross. He says, don't you know, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And then he continues in verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? All right, so that's a lot of verses and a lot of time that, that Jesus spent to, to proclaim to God as he prays that they are united, that they are one, that, they, that, that, that God had sent Jesus, that Jesus had revealed the Father's name. That you, that Jesus had given them the words of the Father. Why does this matter? Why is this so significant? Why am I going through all the trouble to show you that the Father and Jesus are alike? Because it has profound implications for our lives. First of all, it shows you how even uh, in the, like John is, is showing us that the, the God is Trinity. That God is three in one. In this place, he's talking about you know, Jesus and the Father. That this distinguishes Christianity from the other religions of the world. That, that, that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God incarnate. That Jesus isn't created, as Jehovah's Witnesses would say, but he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. 
Verse 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The second thing, the reason why this is so significant is because it's very popular now, and it seems like, to put distance between God the Father and God the Son. That somehow there is a distinction between the character of God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. Maybe some of you have heard that before. I like Jesus of the New Testament more than God the Father of the Old Testament. Or it seems like God changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I think we can draw from this passage that Jesus is the full revelation of the Father, that they are one, that they are not different in character or identity. Sure, they are different persons in one essence, but there is unity there. It also gets rid of these ugly pictures where somehow God the Father is sending God the Son against his own will to the cross. I've heard people use the phrase that this is divine child abuse, sending Jesus uh, as a sacrifice for, for sins. But this passage, their unity would show us that there was complete and total unity at the cross. It was their plan to save the world. Jesus doesn't somehow placate the Father. Jesus isn't somehow saving us from the Father. No, Jesus reveals who the Father is all along. He does the work of the Father. He saves us from the dominion of sin and death. Jesus is reconciling the world to himself. The Father and the Son have the same righteousness, the same justice, the same holiness, the, so, the same anger, the same standards, the same mercy, the same vision, the same love. They are one. And what this does and what this means is that anytime we're interpreting the rest of Scripture, we have to look at it in light of who we have seen God to be revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the real deal. God in the flesh. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look to the person of Jesus. So the Old Testament picture of God can't be different than Jesus because they are one. And Jesus came to do the will of the Father on earth. Second correction. This is a little bit more subtle, but I think it's an important one. And it gets to this idea of Jesus revealing the Father's name, revealing the Father's will. And it has to do with eternal life in the age to come. Jesus says in verse 11 that to the Father, I'm coming to you. In verses 1 through 5, he says, glorify me. Glory has come to me. The request is to be exalted and glorified and lifted up to the position alongside the other, uh, uh, alongside the Father. And this is the, the place in, in the Jewish context, in the Jewish tradition of the Messiah, that the king would come and sit next to God the Father on the throne, that he is the Son of Man. This is uh, what had been promised throughout all of the scriptures. The Messiah say that the Psalms, in, in the Psalms, would rule a kingdom that stretches from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, Psalm 72, 8. In other words, the king, the Messiah, 
will have universal dominion. One like the Son of Man will come and be exalted and share the throne of God himself, as it says in Daniel 7. And what this is supposed to tell us is that something happened in the incarnation, that the kingdom of God is at hand. You you heard that phrase over and over again, right? In the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels at all, or maybe you've heard other people say it, if you haven't read your Bible before, that, that Jesus declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. That something took place, something transpired, something happened so that the present age is moving into this future age, the age that is to come. When Jesus takes that seat at the right hand of the Father is when the age to come will truly have begun. This is what the Jewish prophets had longed for and would, be, would appear at the end of what they called the present age. It would be time of new life with a new quality. And in many ways, it would be, as they say, eternal life. The eternal life is in this coming age. And it's not something with which people can just have after death. It's actually something we begin to step into even now. It's not simply that the future state of the world will go on forever and ever and we will go off into heaven, but it says like even now something's happened when we follow Jesus. We've become participants in the coming age, in, in, in the, the uh, eternal life that Jesus offers. That this new sort of life has come to birth in the world even now, even if it's not fully present as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And once Jesus completes the final victory over death itself, all of, its, all of his followers and all who trust in him and believe that he has truly come from the Father and has truly unveiled the Father's character and purpose, all of them can and will possess eternal life right here and right now. So I think this is why Jesus keeps using this language of he is not of this world. I'm not of this kingdom. I am not of this world. I am not of this present age. I am from the age to come. It's not just to make the world seem terrible and bad. It's to say that I am from another world. And you can participate and you can be part of this age to come even now. He has truly come from the Father and he has truly unveiled the Father's character and purpose and all of them can and will possess eternal life even here and now. So what does Jesus eventually pray for them? prays for them. He uses the phrase that they are praying for them. He says, I pray that they're not of this world. But the thing that he says to God the Father is, God the Father, will you protect them? All these disciples that I've brought in, will you protect them? Verse 11. I am leaving and the disciples are staying in the world. Will you protect them by the power of your name? So they may be one as we are one. So they may have the full measure of joy so that they would not be duped and led astray by the evil one. Uh, I stole this analogy from uh, an N.T. Wright commentary, so just 
know that this is not, this is not my own. But he was telling a story about um, how uh, there, there was a, a mother that had two sons, and um, she essentially, this is a true story, and she decided to just leave them, they were young, just leave them at the house for the weekend while she went off uh, and had holiday with her, boy, her boyfriend. And this was like kind of a famous story that happened in the UK. And eventually over that weekend, these young kids were able to get a hold of somebody or a neighbor figured it out. And of course, the woman got in a whole lot of trouble for not taking care of the, uh, her children. It's hard to imagine that, that happening, but I'm sure it does happen more than we, than we we realize in, in the world. And his point was to say um, that to, to leave your kids behind with no one to care for them would, would not to be a, you know, a, very, a very good caretaker, right? But what if they had, uh, and this is the blessing that some people may actually have, if you have great parents that can be grandparents that can come in and essentially care for those children maybe with a little bit more sugar and some other things like that, but care for them in the same way that you would. Would love them and protect them and care for them and, and teach them and train them and, and lead them and guide them in the steps. I and mean, what a gift that is to have. And Jesus is calling the Father to protect his disciples in that way. I'm going to leave for a little while and will you come and protect them like you would your children? And they are your, your, your children, Make them one like us. That's a really key phrase. It comes up again and again. I'm going to talk about unity because I think there's a lot of confusion around unity in future weeks. He goes on to, to pray, give them your word and them believing it, the world has hated them because they are not of this world just like me. So he goes back to this phrase of saying that they are part of a different world since they're following me. They're part of this new age. Don't remove them from the world, but guard them from Satan. Again, the world can seem like a puzzling aspect of what Jesus is saying here. And so I think we need to explain it a little bit more. Jesus is not suggesting that you somehow don't possess you know, human an ancestry or you don't have a home or you don't have a family or that you don't have physical bodies which will one, K, one day uh, decay and die. The world, according to Jesus, doesn't just mean some physical universe as we know it. It means the world insofar as it has rebelled against God, chosen darkness rather than light, and it organized itself to oppose the creator. And so Jesus is from elsewhere. He's from a different world, and he's bringing that kingdom, that reality, that world to earth as it is in heaven. And so I think that sometimes we read this kind of posture of Jesus being almost against the world, um, and we have to understand the context of the first century. Uh, it may be a little bit different than ours today. You have to remember that the disciples uh, were actually hated by the world. Jesus was about to be killed, murdered for, for what he was proclaiming to, to say, uh, according to uh, the Jewish people, they were, they, the disciples following Jesus were blasphemers, which is a significant claim in that context, and all of them would be put to death except for John. That's what history tells us of these disciples. So this reality was actually true. 
Sometimes I think Christians like to, oh, I'm hated by the world. And it's like, no, everybody thinks you're great. You know, like it's, it's perfectly fine. None of your neighbors think you're any different than them. Uh, you know, but they, the disciples actually were. So these words to say that they're going to be hated and for Jesus to say that he was hated is accurate. I mean, you don't get put on a cross unless there's some hatred behind who you are and what you're doing. So we have to be really careful not to pretend like uh, we're exactly like these disciples in the same way. And so when we say we posture ourselves against the world, sometimes we're fighting cultural battles which aren't really things that we need to be fighting about or posturing ourselves as being um, persecuted when we're not actually being persecuted. And I think that's really important. But these disciples were. They were persecuted. They were imprisoned. Um, Paul was not part of this original group that hearing this, but of course shipwrecked and, and ultimately killed for his following of Jesus. may not make as much sense to us because I think, I, I know this sounds weird, but Christianity changed the world. It really did. The context that Jesus lived in is not like the context that we live today. And even though there's all kinds of problems with what Christendom became, and how it influenced uh, the government and influenced morals and influenced the world in so many ways. There were some positive things that came about from that and some really negative things. We can't deny its impact. And so that we, even in a, like a, a post-Christian context in many ways that Chicago can be, still has uh, some, some morals and like philosophical standing and beliefs that, would, that aren't coming from, uh, from being secularists. It's coming from Christianity. They just don't always realize it. Sanctity of life and the, the, the importance of, 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 of people that um, are, are being abused and mistreated and justice. I don't believe that that just happens out of midair. That comes from a God that declares certain things to be good and certain things to be evil. And so we still sort of live in the, the echoes of maybe this Christendom. And so maybe the, that hatred and this like, opposition to the world doesn't seem as stark, but later on I want to show you a little bit more what I think it means to live set apart as Jesus would talk about later on in this passage. I used to hear the, world, uh, the, the phrase, not in the world but not of the world, and that's probably not exactly right. The idea is just not being of the world. It's not a call to be separate from the world. It doesn't mean that you never hang out with anybody that doesn't believe the, the same things that you believe. It's not the removal of everything. It just means that you are part of this new creation, this new age, this new kingdom. And what it does is it brings about new priorities and new values and, and a different king that you worship and follow. And so Jesus goes on to say, well, what he's praying for is that they would, that, that the Father would sanctify them. Sanctify them by the truth, by your word, verse 17. Jesus is essentially saying, will you help them become holy as we are holy, or as I have been holy? I think sometimes, um, I don't know, I grew up in like a little bit more of a context where um, holiness was talked a lot more about than the love of God. And so it's a little bit triggering to me that like the, like the whole holiness movement um, because it can just be 
like shame-inducing constantly, guilt-inducing constantly, that you're just never living up to what God wants you to do or God would have you. And it's just, right? I mean, isn't, did anyone else grow that way? Anybody else have, like, have this like, just shame brought on you for the way that, you, I, not for my parents, but just like kind of the context and culture that I, I grew up. And so this, this idea of holiness can sometimes trigger me to think about those times where I just feel like I was constantly living in a state of, of fear, But when Jesus uses the term holiness, he has the temple in mind. It was a holy place, the place where the holy God had promised to live. It referred particularly to this holy of holies, the most intimate place in the temple, the innermost shrine where the high priest would go once a year to make atonement for the people. This high priest would go through special ceremonies of consecration so that he could be set apart so that he could enter into the presence of the holy God and pray there for his people. And in, exact, in the exact same way, Jesus is declaring that he has been all along set apart, consecrated for God's exclusive service. Now, like the high priest, he is asking the Father to preserve his people from evil from the tricks and the traps of the world. He wants them to be holy people in the best and the fullest sense. And then he goes on to say that they are going to be sent, sent ones, just as I was sent in the, in the world. They're going to have a different purpose and a different vision for life than everybody else. So when we think about being set apart, when we think about being consecrated, when we think about being uh, not of this world, what does that look like here and now in, the tw- you know, in, in 2021? What does it mean to follow the, the way of Jesus? I think it means to have different values, doesn't it? A different purpose, different longings and desires. And I wonder if Jesus might come to us and challenge our nationalism, challenge our consumerism, ask us to be set apart and consecrated differently, that he would come and he would encourage us to move away from our constant distraction because we have a different purpose and a different significance than everybody else. A different calling, maybe, is a better way to put it, not significance. Jesus might come and challenge our anxiety and fear. That living in a constant state of anxiety and fear it seems like the rest of the world is living in. Jesus might come and challenge our longing for power and are constantly holding on to privilege. Jesus might come and encourage us to stop living just like everybody else and this is the, the best way to do things, this is the logical thing to do, instead live by the power of the Spirit. Jesus might challenge us in the way that we think about it, what it means to love other people, to go above and beyond the love of our culture and context, to take on the posture of, like Jesus did in Philippians 2, who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. What if we 
approached the world, set ourselves apart, consecrated. I'm sure there's many more, but these are the ones that came to me, is our commitment to the kingdom of the United States, our commitment to consuming (laughs) as much as we possibly can, our commitment to distraction, our commitment to anxiety and fear, power and privilege, our inability to live by the power of the Spirit because we are so caught up in what we have to get done today in the Christian ethic of love. So maybe what we can learn, if we're learning how to pray like Jesus, we can be people that in our prayers glorify Jesus, exalt Jesus as the one sitting at the right hand of the Father, that we can pray for protection from Satan, that we can pray for protection from the world, that we can pray to be sanctified, and that we can pray to be sent.